Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. If you are caring for a person with autism, great information from a trusted source can be a lifeline. We hope today's conversation will help you create success for the extraordinary individual with autism in your life. Now, here is your host, Rob Haupt. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Autism Spectrum Radio. I'm your host, Rob Haupt. I am a vice president here at Autism Spectrum Therapies. Uh, we're an organization that provides um, therapy services, supports to individuals with autism and their families. Uh, I am also a BCBA, a board-certified behavior analyst, an ABA guy. Um, I've been working with uh, individuals with developmental disabilities for a little over 15 years now, specifically in the ABA world, um, for uh, about the last 13. Um, been really kind of chaotically busy these last few weeks um, over here on my end. I, um, I talked about this a few weeks ago as, you know, here in California, we've been going through a bit of a transition, a bit of a shift. Um, one that actually a few other states and communities have already gone through in that uh, our state Medicaid services, Medi-Cal, um, is now authorizing funding of ABA services. It's actually a really exciting um, transition. It, they're projecting that probably close to 6,000 kids with autism are now going to be eligible for services who weren't underneath the old regional center system. And so from uh, a funding point of view, this is really incredible. Um, there's still some other concerns and limitations of, of all of this from true access. You know, as, as we talked a, a while back with, with uh, Danny Shabani, right before the Calapa conference, you know, access isn't just about the funding piece. It's about, well, are there enough providers and are there enough quality providers out there? And I think that's still something every state and every community is, is struggling with and trying to work on. But um, the big conversation and the big piece has been about, well, how are we going to lay this out? We have this directive to provide these services, but the state hasn't quite set up the plans just yet. And um, one of the reasons why I bring this up, and I think it's really important that everyone just know what's happening here with Medi-Cal is because California is not the first state to have their Medicaid system start funding services. Um, families in Washington State, families in Louisiana already have Medicaid programs that fund ABA services. And um, California would be, I believe, the third, if not maybe potentially the fourth, because I believe Virginia is working on something now, too to have this type of funding. Um, and the the word, the rumors going around um, different parent groups, uh, providers, uh, different people I speak to is that this could be the beginning of, of some momentum where Medicaid in, in lots of different states, if not every state, may start to get on board and start authorizing um, funding for these services. And I think with all of this momentum, with all of this excitement, one of the things that I know we've been speaking about, and, and by we, I mean providers, parent groups, um, advocates, everyone, when we get together to uh, discuss uh, the new funding, the new systems up at some of the, the meetings being held at our state capital, has been funding alone 
is not going to just cut it. We need to make sure we set this up the right way. Um, we need to make sure that the right people with the right training are authorized to provide the service, that we don't just go off of, you know, old models or old regulations that weren't designed for ABA, but maybe designed for a completely different type of um, mental health service. I'm making sure that um, the the funding system, not just from the front end of making sure that people get what they're supposed to get from uh, an hour's point of view, but from like a billing standpoint, you know, when you're working with insurance, as so many of you guys out there know, there's things like co-pays, deductibles, there's, um, there's a cost piece to all of this from the family and the provider point of view that needs to be set up the right way. Do we have that set up the right way? Um, is there a system in place to reimburse the people providing the services for what they do to allow for qualified, skilled, high-level people to do what they need to do. All of these things factor into do we have the right model in place? So that's something that we're working through as a state, as a community, and I think it's something for everyone to be aware of. You know, we don't have a standardized this is how this should get funded. This is how this should get authorized. This is how this should get billed and paid and renewed. This is how it should be evaluated for discontinuation or graduation. Those types of things are not really in place, and it, in some ways it creates a, a tremendous amount of opportunity, which is what we're seeing for dialogue and discussion of different people with different philosophies and points of view. But at the same time, it can also lead to people maybe making some decisions that aren't necessarily the most well thought out. And so that's really what I think as a community we've been focusing in on. And because of the impact this could have elsewhere, I think it's good for everyone to be aware of like, what's happening. How is this being implemented? Because once, once you see a number of states implement any type of funding system like this, whether it be Medicaid or just like when we were looking at state-by-state state private insurance mandates, it starts to set a precedent, starts to set a foundation that other states will follow. So I think we have a, an opportunity to really set something right now that could be a foundation for other states to follow to add services, support, and just overall access to kids with autism and uh, providing better services um, as we do that. So hopefully to give you more updates as, as we keep getting them. There's still so much to do here. There's still so much we're learning, and, and things are changing. It seems like every couple of days something new is, is, is being discovered or determined or, or a, a new idea is formed, and uh, as, as that happens, hope to keep passing them along your guys' way. Anyway, let's get into uh, today's show. We'll talk to today's guest. Um, today I am joined by uh, Cynthia Kim. And Cynthia is someone who is really an owner and a proud owner of a a lot of different labels. She's a woman, she's a wife, she's a mother, a writer, an editor, an entrepreneur, um, and most recently, autistic. Now, she was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome in her early 40s, um, and she began blogging about her life on the spectrum at musingsofanaspie.com. She also has authored two books on her experiences, the first called Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate, A User's Guide to an Asperger Life, and the second being I Think I Might Be Autistic, A Guide to Autism Spectrum Disorder Diagnosis and Self-Discovery for Adults. Uh, When she isn't writing, she can often be found running or hiking backwoods trails somewhere on the east coast of the United States. Uh, Cynthia, welcome to the show. 
Thank you, Rob. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Um, you know, the you've got these these great memoirs, and um, and I know you started off as a as a blogger. I'm, I'm curious, kind of what prompted you to kind of take this step forward and be this, you know, this public figure to just share your experiences and your perspectives with everybody? Um, That's a great question. You know, I initially, I was kind of reading other people's blogs, you know, other blogs by adults on the spectrum and and parents who write about their children's experiences. And um, I'd always been a writer, you know, I'd written fiction, I'd written nonfiction. But, you know, memoir, I thought, I didn't really have anything to say. I, until I was diagnosed, I thought I was a very ordinary, kind of you know, uneventful person. Um, and then I realized as I commented on other people's blogs that, well, maybe I did have something to bring to this. You know, maybe I had not necessarily a different perspective, but at least my own experience, and, and maybe I could share that. Um, and so I just one day decided that, you know, what the heck, maybe nobody will read this, but it'll be good for me. You know, it'll be a way for me to explore my experience, to record what I'm researching, get some feedback from other people, and, and it kind of snowballed from there. You know, you said, you said ordinary. You know, I, you thought you were an ordinary person, and, and I'm curious, you know, what prompts an ordinary person to say, you know what, I'm, I'm, in, my, I'm in my, you know, early 40s. I'm going to go out and seek out a diagnosis or, or, or see if there's something that, you know, should be identified or, or or discovered about myself in that way? Right, right. That's a great question. Um, I think what happened was when I was in my late 30s, I, I decided to go back to college. I had never gotten my college degree. That was, you know, something that I really wanted to kind of complete. It was one of those bucket list items. And so I started taking classes, and the more I was in class and the more I interacted with other people, the more I realized that I was a very unusual person, in fact. I mean, I kind of thought of myself as ordinary because I had sheltered myself. I, I was self-employed. I worked at home. Mm-hmm. You know, I kind of got to make the mm-hmm. rules for myself. And so I, I guess when you make your own rules, you can kind of make rules that make you seem like everything is very, you know, fickle, ordinary. Um, and then being in college, it, it kind of made me remember again that, oh, yeah, I am really different from other people. There's something about me that really kicks at a different speed, kind of. Um, and then towards the end of college, I heard um, an NPR story by David Finch, um, his uh, um, Journal of Best Practices. Mm-hmm. And that really was kind of the thing that said to me, oh, maybe this fits. You know, I had always thought of Asperger's as like, well, socially awkward or shy. And, you know, I was those things, but it's easy to say, well, you know, everyone is a little bit shy. Everyone is a little bit awkward at times. Um, but when I heard David Finch's wife talking about things like sensory sensitivities or attachment to routine or how, you know, he did the same thing, like ate the same thing for breakfast, and if it wasn't there, he freaked out. I mean, that was really me. That really said to me, wow, you know, this, this is something you should look into more. And so it kind of, you know, went from there. Wow. So I, I'm curious, you know, you, you, you take this, this uh Step of writing your book, and, and and maybe this is kind of the mm-hmm. title, but I know your your book is called, you know, nerdy, shy, and socially inappropriate. Is mm-hmm. is the the title come from what you were just sharing? The that um, this is where I started, or this is what I first identified of myself, or does it have a different meaning to you? No, you you're absolutely right. I think 
in the absence of a diagnosis, those were the labels that I grew up with. You know, as a kid, I was really, I was shy. It was like on every single report card, shy, shy, shy every single year because I didn't talk in class. You know, I was, mm. I was the kid that blended into the woodwork all the time. And so I think that by saying I was shy, you know, there was no Asperger's diagnosis when I was in elementary school. And so that was, that was a good explanation for the adults around me to say that, well, I was just quiet. You know, I just didn't have a lot to say, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, I, I guess in part was true, but if someone had asked me, I might have had more to say. Um, and so that, you know, there was also the nerdy. I was, I was the smart little kid, you know, the little nerd that knew all the facts, you know, the very typical Asperger's profile of a kid collecting information. Um, mm-hmm. And then just, you know, the socially inappropriate kind of, I'm, you know, really honest. I'll say things that other people might be thinking and wouldn't say, you know, they know that, oh, you don't, you don't say that out loud, but I'll just say it because to me, it, you know, that's just how I am. I'm a very, like, you know, blunt person. And then also the whole concept of, you know, being socially awkward, you know, again, very typical autistic traits. And people just put that down to, well, you know, you're awkward. That's how it is, you know. So yeah. I think that without the autism diagnosis, that was how I understood myself, using those phrases to describe myself and to develop a self-identity around them. But then mm-hmm. getting that Asperger's diagnosis really framed all of that in a new light. You know, it, it mm-hmm. thought, well, I am socially awkward, but here's why. And not only here's why, but, well, here are some things I could do about that. You know, I can, I can take these steps to make myself feel less awkward. Not necessarily to be less awkward, but at least to feel like I'm, you know, less, less, having less difficulty navigating social situations. Um, so yeah. that was really a, a big sea change for me. Well, I mean, I like, I actually like that distinction a lot of feel less awkward, not be less awkward, because sometimes I wonder, is everyone <laughs> actually just awkward? <laughs> and it's just right, whether exactly. I feel awkward dictates whether I actually am. And, and I think sometimes just accepting that, yeah, this is something that I have difficulty with, and there's a real reason why. Like, it's not just that I'm failing at life, but I really am not getting the social cues, and there's a reason why that's happening, and that's okay. Like, that's just me. And then, you know, that, that reduces a lot of social anxiety. It, it makes socializing a little bit easier, you know, to kind of accept that. Yeah. So in, in terms of, you know, in terms of the book and, and in terms of, you know, your writing, I know there's been aspects of it that's kind of this is my story, this is my memoir of what mm-hmm. I've gone through, as well as this point of, you know, let me be a little bit of a guide, a little bit of a, you know, let me guide you through mm-hmm. what, through some steps. You know, is that something that you right. sought out to do from day one, or was that more of an evolution in your writing? You know, I think that was kind of there from the beginning, and I think it stems from some of my frustration with the the books that I first found um, when I was exploring Asperger's. Um, you know, there were there are the memoirs that that we all know. For example, you know, Temple Grandin, David Finch, Michael John Carley. You know, these these are really extraordinary people, like people whose lives are so inspiring, and but who are so extraordinary that I found them kind of hard to relate to. Like it was. It was great to read their stories, but it was hard to see me in them. And then on the other hand, I found a lot of more, like, technical books, you know. This is what Asperger's is. Here are the traits of people who are autistic, you know. that, And that was really helpful, too, but it, it was, again, it left me wondering, like, what is next? Like, this is what sensory sensitivities are, but then what can I as an adult, um, you know, how can I 
maybe ameliorate some of this. And then, Mm -hmm. I don't know, I just, I kind of found myself wanting an intersection of those two, like something maybe more about ordinary people like me, but also something Mm -hmm. that could tell me like, well, what do I do next? You know, how do I, how do I really start building on what I know and making my life better with this knowledge? So that was kind of what I wanted to do with the blog. Okay. Is that something you, you, I kind of like that, that point you just made of, build on this and make my life better. Is that something that when you got the diagnosis, you found you were able to do? And if so, what what steps did you take uh, to do that? Yeah. I, well, initially I set out to fix myself. I was determined that I was going to just fix everything. Like now I knew it was wrong. I could just get started on fixing it because that's me. Like I am a fix it person. Um, uh-huh. And that turned out to be very frustrating and sort of self-esteem damaging because you know, I'm I'm in my 40s, and it's you, you really can't teach an old dog new tricks. Like, there are some things you can learn, but I'm not going to learn people's facial expressions. I'm not going to learn social cues. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's too much. And so I think what I set out to do instead of that is to say, I'm going to ask people to tell me more, you know, what are they thinking? Like, I'm going to communicate better. I'm going to be more verbally interactive if I can't pick up on what's happening here. I'll just let people know. And the funny thing is if you ask people, you know, what, what do you mean in this situation? Could you tell me more? In most cases, you know, they will. You know, they'll understand that I have this deficit, and they'll kind of help bridge that gap. And so I think where I started out trying to really outright fix things, I moved into more of a how can I make things easier? How can I help us all struggle less with this? So, for example, in my marriage, how can I – how can we communicate better so that this is less hard, right? So Mm -hmm. instead of like, I'm going to fix myself or my husband should fix himself, like where can we meet in the middle to, to make things better for both of us kind of thing. And so I think that has really been a huge help for me, for the people around me, just to to make life a little smoother in a lot of ways. That's kind of the the part of your story that that I find to be really interesting because I agree with you what you were saying before about the memoirs and and you know I, we've had Temple on the show I've seen her speak I've read her books mm-hmm. and you know there there is this aspect of this is a, a brilliant professor you know she's this scientific. Mm-hmm you know, mind, and, you know, I, I sit down right. next to her and, and speak to her, and, you know, I'm, I think that you, you have a level of understanding on a number of different topics that I can never hope to have. Um, and right. you, I think, is fascinating. What I was really impressed with is, you know, you're a mother, you're a wife, you have this family, uh, you know, the entrepreneur lifestyle. It's, you know, I could, those characteristics describe you know, dozens of people in my day-to-day life who I come into contact right, with right. every single day. Um, and, and I particularly find the, the family piece really interesting. And, and I'm curious, um, how did your your family respond to um, you receiving a diagnosis? They have been nothing but supportive. I mean, just it's been such a positive experience. Initially, I think both my husband and my daughter, who is an adult, their reaction was like, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. Don't worry about it kind of thing. Like they, right. they set out to make me feel better. Um, mm-hmm. But then once they realized that it wasn't something that I felt bad about, that it was something that I was really welcoming and it was, you know, I was really taking it on board. 
they've both been so supportive and they've really made an effort not just to, to accept everything about me, but also to, you know, respect when I say, well, okay, we can go to this, you know, social event, but I might need to leave early because I know now that this is going to overload me and there's a, there's a high cost to it. Or, you know, if, mm-hmm. if we're in a situation where they see that I'm getting overloaded, they'll be the first ones to say, you, you look like you need a break or, you know, should we go now? Or do you want to go outside and take a walk and then come back? You know, mm-hmm. they're, they've really taken an active role in, in really supporting me. And that's, that's been great. Yeah. It almost sounds like it, it, you, you talked before about like you meeting them halfway. It almost seems like it's made it easier for them to meet you halfway because now they have like more context around why you need a break or, or why this social situation may be yes. also um, stressful. Yes, absolutely. That's absolutely true. That's awesome. Well, let's do this. We, uh, we've got to play a couple commercials. So let's take a, a quick commercial break. We'll play some ads, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Cynthia Kim. Autism Spectrum Therapies is proud to present Autism Spectrum Radio. At AST, we see a world where people with autism dream and achieve their full potential. Our promise is to support families through our extensive resources, highly trained staff, and outstanding programs. At AST, we recognize that every child is unique. We are proud to offer what we believe is the most cohesive approach to supporting your child's needs and goals at each stage. From ABA to speech therapy, occupational therapy, and social skills, we have the elements you need to build the plan that is just right for you. One company, one team, with one mission to support individuals and their families to dream and achieve their full potential. Call us today to let us know how we can best support your family at 866-727-8274. To find out more about AST, visit our website at www.autismtherapies.com. This is Autism Spectrum Radio. If you have a question or comment for our host or today's guest, please send an email to moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. That's moreinfo at autismtherapies.com. Now, back to the program. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Autism Spectrum Radio. Uh, Joined today by Cynthia Kim, uh, author of uh, Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate, A User's Guide to an uh, Asperger Life as well as I Think I Might Be Autistic, A Guide to Autism Spectrum Disorder, Diagnosis, and Self-Discovery for Adults. Um, you know, we, we've we talked a little bit about the books, and um, and I know uh, probably more so about uh, Nerdy, Shy, and Socially Inappropriate. Um, you know, in that book, I know there was, a, there was a section all about, you know, you being this person who was kind of labeled in two ways or, or kind of like a doubly exceptional child. Um, on the one hand, you were someone who was, you know, identified as a gifted student, um, someone with uh, with great intellect, but also you struggled uh, with a lot of other things that, you know, your classmates, your peers um, just took to very naturally. Um, and this is not an uncommon thing, particularly for a lot of kids with Asperger's. Um, from your 
experiences, from from the conversations you've had uh, with other people, um, do you have advice out there for um, maybe parents or teachers who are who are working with students or children who kind of fit that same label or that double classification as you did? Right. Yeah. I think um, at, when I was a kid, there was no you know doubly exceptional concept. I think that's a concept that is more in play now. Um, but it definitely fit. You know, I was even though I didn't have the diagnosis, I was still autistic, even though I was in the gifted programs. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's important for parents and teachers to really recognize that kids in that situation are going to have a lot of uneven capabilities. So, like even when I was in university classes, if a professor read my papers first they would be very surprised to hear me speak in class because I never, you know, I might come up with the loopiest answer or get halfway through a question and forget what I was saying or just not be able to speak at all. And, and they would see, you know, I'm very eloquent on paper and verbally I can be a complete mess when I'm nervous. And, and, then, and the opposite would be true. If I spoke in class before they had seen my writing, I would often get these, you know, extremely flattering compliments when they got a written paper, like, wow, you know, I had no clue this person was going to be capable of this. And so I think that can happen a lot for kids. And, you know, they might be, for example, very good silent readers and writers, but not be able to answer questions out loud. And that can get them sent to a, you know, maybe a lower class level than they need to be in because they're not Mm -hmm. able to demonstrate competency in one form or in one area. Um, So I think that's one thing. Another is probably executive function. You know, executive function can really, regardless of how smart you are, it can make it really hard to get your work done. It can make it hard to focus, to be organized, to be motivated, to get started, to finish things. And so kids, even though they're quite intellectually smart, book smart, might need a lot of scaffolding in the executive function area, a lot of supports. Mm-hmm. Things like, you know, visual reminders, lists. I, I have really elaborate systems that keep me on track. Um, and without them, I would be completely lost. Like just being smart is not enough to kind of hack your way through every day when, mm. when you have executive function challenges. Um, and probably the last one is that, and I'm sure you know this, that being smart doesn't compensate for social skills difficulties. Like you can be really good at like you can be doing calculus in middle school and have no idea how to make small talk or, not pick up on social cues in the lunchroom. And, and you can't expect, well, this kid is smart, so they'll figure it out. Like, I think there are a lot of people might have that expectation, but the kids really need, you know, explicit instruction and, and a lot of support in that area. Um, so I think it's important to, to not think that, one, like the developmental disability is not going to cancel out their intellectual gifts, but also their intellectual gifts are not going to cancel out those developmental issues either. Um, and I think that's important to remember. Well, it's almost, I mean, I almost feel like uh, that that idea of the, um, you know, the concept of doubly exceptional, you know, it's, it mm-hmm. seems like we are starting to become, as a, as a society, more open to the idea of the gifted child is, in some ways, um, has special needs themselves, and that there may be other things that come along with that. I mean, I'm... I know a number of different people I grew up with who intellectually were these brilliant people, but if you looked at their um, maybe their social skills, their you know ability to speak publicly, 
um, their hygiene, their you know independent living skills, they were right. lacking on every right. single one of those. Um, so I really, I really, right. that that point you make, the intellect may not compensate for all of these other areas. Like that really resonates with you know kids growing up right. in my neighborhood and just seeing my whole childhood. And you know they. They may have they may have been undiagnosed autistic kids like me, you know. They yeah. there there's a lot to speak to that, you know. It was a whole generation of us that grew up without that diagnosis and managed to compensate through, you know, which all these things all these hacks that we developed and but yeah, we were the kids that, you know, forgot to change our shirt for three days in a row. So Yeah. Well you know, it kinda of makes me wonder is you know, you've got this it's you know listening to you, it's almost like the the undiagnosed generation of well this person's too smart to maybe be diagnosed with something you right, know this because right. clearly we didn't exactly. understand this diagnosis and as a kid I mean it was it's astonishing how little we understood when I look back um, and and I still right. know people back in my my hometown back east and you know even their understanding today is, is very lacking um, in this this small suburb so. It makes me wonder, is there, do you find that because we have this, like, gap, this un, unaware gap, now you, you fast forward to to your life later on, um, you've got this family that's been incredibly understanding, um, supportive, doing all these great things to help support you, you now to help support them. Um, do you find that the rest of that community um, is as understanding, or is there almost more of a, does that gap still exist of, well, you can't possibly, you know, that that doesn't make sense. You were in my class. You went to school with me. I saw you do this. I saw you do that. You know, that's not the, the label or the stereotype we have in our heads of someone with autism. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Literally almost every person that I say I'm autistic to reacts with some level of disbelief. Um, and that's that's interesting to see. I think that the more people who openly are willing to say, oh, look, I'm autistic too, then we can start kind of bridging that gap and getting rid of that stigma because that will say, then people will think, oh, wait, I know an autistic person who is like A, and maybe I know an autistic person who is like B. And, you know, they'll start to see that it's more than just the, the rain man stigma or whatever, you know, they had in mind before they met. Yeah me or, you know, some other person who's on the spectrum. And, and I think that's important to, to, for those of us who can be open and who can disclose, to keep doing that and to let people know that there are many different ways of being autistic um, and, and to try to kind of defeat some of that stigma. I, I know at one point you were you were blogging anonymously, and then um, you know, in looking at your mm-hmm. blog, I know there was a point where you said, "No, this is who I am. This is my name. This is you know who I am as a person." Um, is that the reason why you you made that shift? Is to um, become one of those people to say you know to identify and, and represent uh, the the autism community? I I think in part maybe and in part was just finally being ready to to publicly own that. Um, I started out blogging anonymously because it was really hard to write about the things I was writing about. Mm. Even anonymously it was hard to write about them. And and I wanted to protect my family and to protect their privacy. And and while I was getting their permission and running things by them, it was still, I wasn't sure, you know, I wasn't sure how ready I was to own this and, and to be really out as it were. Um, and then gradually it became more okay. You know, I got to know other people in the community. 
And I sort of, you know, decided, well, maybe I'll write for this magazine or maybe I'll, you know, do something that is going to force me to use my real name. And so as I did that and nothing disastrous happened, it started to feel more okay, you know, and I started to come out to more people in my life, you know, kind of an ever-widening circle. Um, And it's been good, you know. I, I haven't had any negative reactions or anything that was really that I kind of feared would happen. Um, it's, it's good. I'm glad that I did it. It feels comfortable now. You know, listening you, to you describe that, you know, the, the, the terminology of, you know, coming out, identifying, um, you know, it, it can't help make me think a little bit of, you know, friends that I know who are, who are gay or lesbians. And, you know, the, it's the same terminology. And why I mention it is there's a, I have a friend, a uh, guest of the show, um, who was uh, she's really involved, an active parent down in uh, in uh, Jefferson Parish uh, outside of New Orleans, and was on the show talking about mm-hmm. just um, really looking at the special needs community, broader than just autism, but looking at special needs and civil rights for special needs. And you know, in some ways, she was comparing mm-hmm. it to um, aspects of the civil rights movement back in the '60s, and just really looking at the idea of, like, equality. You know, that was the big concept. Right. And so to hear you kind of use some of this terminology, you know, it, it does make me start to think that more and more, like, you know, as a society, we're, we're, we do put these labels, and there's negative things that come with these labels, mm-hmm. and there's not necessarily equality or understanding. And, you know, you, you start to hear enough of stories from people who say, yes, I have Down syndrome, and here's my story. Yes, I have Asperger's. This is my story. I have a learning disability. Here's my story. Just whatever the need is, this just strikes me more and more as something that we don't do a good job of being open to. You know, it really does feel like it's the next thing we have to just open our minds to. Right. Yeah, I think I think all of that is true. And, and, you know, with mental health issues as well, I think just the more people that share their stories, the more it kind of humanizes and normalizes the experience that, you know, this is all part of the human condition and, and everyone yeah. has value and, and can be accepted and loved for who they are. You know, that's, that can be the starting yeah. point. That doesn't have to be the ending point. So, so yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's very true. No, and thank you for bringing up the mental health issues. I, I, I think that's a you are a hundred percent right. Um, mm-hmm. I do, you know, <laughs> went off on a tangent there because you got you got me thinking, and it just, you know, your words really just resonated with me. Um, but uh, I, I got another question for you about the book. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you talk about um, again in the book. There, you talk about um, things like meltdowns and. Um, you know, and some of the shame you've had, um, you know, in, in this chapter called uh, The Dark Side. And, you know, I'm I'm kind of curious. You, you've talked about just writing about these difficult things. Um, you know, in, in writing about some of these kind of darker things, some of the, the things that are probably uh, a, a lot more difficult, um, did you find yourself kind of like reliving some of your past experiences? Was that, did that make it, actually in some ways easier to write about it because you could almost have a relief or was this actually just one of the more challenging um, aspects to write about and uh, and to share with everyone? It's a really interesting question and it just struck me that 
When I first started writing, I did a lot of reliving past experiences. I wrote about, you know, bullying as a child. I wrote about very distant mm. things, and I tried to kind of reprocess those things. And yet the really difficult things to write about were the things that were still in the present. I mean, for example, meltdowns are something that I still have and that I had never talked with anyone. I mean, I'd never had a meltdown in front of anyone as an adult besides my husband. You know, that was something that it was really hard to acknowledge that, you know, the, the loss of control and the really difficult aspects of that. And, and talking about shame was so hard to write about because it's all very much in the present still. I mean, it has roots in the past, but still a lot of it is very present for me. And so in some way, it's, I guess, the process of exercising demons, of, of processing feelings, of, you know, kind of trying to sort through these difficult things that now I know where they come from and I need to figure out what to do with them. Um, and so I guess what I really wanted to do by writing about those things is to to set something up that maybe other autistic people when they read that could say, oh, me too. You know, I have this dark feeling or this dark experience or this thing that I never talked to anybody about. And here's somebody else talking about it. And so, so that must be okay. Like I'm not the only one I get over and over. It's so good to know that I'm not the only person who thought this or felt this. And so there's that aspect of it. And then there's also the aspect that hopefully it will help parents or partners or siblings of autistic people to have some insight into what is happening in these, you know, darker times, these more challenging things. Um, and to just kind of say, you know, here was what I was thinking when this happened, or here's how I feel when this is going on, which is something that it can be very hard to express in the moment. You know, if someone is having a meltdown, yeah. they can't really tell you why or what's happening. But if I write something immediately after I've had a meltdown, it's all right there. It's very raw and fresh, and I can kind of shine a light on that for people. Um, and so that was, that was kind of what I hoped to, you know, get in touch with by writing about some of those more difficult issues. You know, I, the, the point of, you know, I'm not alone, um, you know, in, in this idea of by writing about these difficult issues, it can resonate with people who say, yeah, I have this too. This has happened to me as well. I'm, I'm curious, you know, I know one of the things that I've seen here locally in my community um, happen and, and pop up a little bit more is Asperger support groups, particularly designed for adults, adults who maybe were diagnosed a little mm -hmm. bit later in life, 30s, 40s, 50s. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just, you know, curious of your thoughts, you know, it's, it, I think I know your thought, but, you know, is that something that you feel like it just further promotes um, the cause and the things that you're writing about? Is that something that, you know, you feel like is a, is a good step for other people who are potentially reading your books or, or, or sitting and listening to us saying, like, yeah, this kind of feels a little bit like me? Yeah, I, I mean, I think absolutely if they want to connect with people in person, um, which, you know, not everybody will want to do, but a lot of people will, will want to because they want to have that, you know, me too experience with somebody who is, you know, in front of them who, who is more tangible. Um, and, yeah. and for other people, it happens, you know, online through text-based formats, and that's great too. You know, that's, we all have different needs. But, yeah, absolutely, I think that adult support groups are great. Um, community in general, I think, is, is really needed for autistic people. And, and I think it's hard for autistic adults to find each other in, you know, in real life. 
so to speak, you know, to, mm. to find someone in their community who is like them. And I, I think if that's a, can facilitate that, that's a really great step for people if they want to take it. You know, we're getting close to the end of time, and, and um, but I, I do have kind of one one last, or, or, or this may spark another idea too, but, you know, so many of our listeners are parents, and there's a lot of parents out there. They have mm-hmm. kids on the spectrum. We have, I know we have a lot of parents of kids with Asperger's who listen in. Um, you know, in many ways, you are a success story for a lot of the, the mm-hmm. parents I, I work with and who listen and, and a lot of the kids I work mm-hmm. with. You know, you have a job. You've been to college. You have a family. You have this great support system. Um, and so mm-hmm. I, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who say, like, yes, this is what I want for my child. Um, as someone who's now, you know, achieved a lot of different incredible things but also had some ups and downs as you got there, do you have advice for any of our parents out there who maybe say, like, yes, the, some of these things are resonating with my kid today, you know, the way you were at Mm-hmm. 12 or when you were in school, that's my kid. Um, but do you have advice for right, them right. Um, as they continue down this journey? Yeah, you know, really, I think the biggest thing is is love your kid as they are. Support them, help them develop, encourage their interests, and really let them know that just as they are, they are awesome because that's huge. I mean, self-esteem, accepting yourself, loving yourself, that is such a strong foundation for going forward in life. I mean, some of us who who grew up with a lot of difficulties and struggles and thought that we were maybe broken, which is which is some a conclusion that a child can come to if they have a lot of struggles without an explanation, right or wrong. That's really hard on the self-esteem. And so just knowing that you're accepted and loved is a really good starting place. And then from there, figure out, you know, how can I support their interests? How can I encourage what they like to do because for me if i'm not if it's not a special interest it's not going to get i'm not into it it's not going to happen but i was able to take those special interests and really make a career make a life build on them and so it's it's important to really take the child as they are and and build on those strengths and then support the areas where they have difficulty i think that's what i would say to parents so really acceptance love encouragement, support, practical scaffolding type things. Nice. Well, I really, I really appreciate you, uh, you being on the show with us today. Um, I know I mentioned at the top of the show, but um, your, your blog is um, at uh, www.musings, um, sorry, musings of an mm-hmm. And I recommend everyone check it out because um, it's, it's not this, um, overly analytical, overly researched, uh, you know, you're just speaking. And uh, I really like that. It was mm-hmm. it, so many of those little blurbs or little posts you had there just kind of like, just kind of hit me as I was reviewing it. Like, yeah, that's that's real. That's real life. So I recommend that to everybody. Okay. Um, and, and we've talked about your two books. What's If, if people want to mm-hmm. purchase your books, be able to read them, what's a, what's the best way for them to do so? Oh, I think Amazon.com. The uh, new book is coming out October 21st in print, and it's out in ebook okay. format now. But it, they should be available anywhere online, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, that type of thing. Outstanding. Well, thank you again so much for being here. We really, really appreciate it. Um, and uh, it was just great talking to you. 
Thank you, Rob. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everybody, for being here. Um, glad you guys could tune in. Um, if you uh, if you have any questions, you want to chat with us, talk to us, as always, uh, more info at autismtherapies.com. You could uh, talk to us on Facebook, um, look up the Autism Spectrum Therapies page, comment, post, give us ideas. Love to hear what's going on with you. Um, as I said, I'm going to try and pass along just more things I learned on the, the Medi-Cal and Medicaid front, um, as well as just more great perspectives of what we're hearing, what people are talking about, what people are doing. Um, so I hope all of you have a fabulous week, fabulous weekend, and uh, we will talk to you soon. Take care. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of Autism Spectrum Radio. For additional information and resources about autism, visit www.autismtherapies.com. Please join us each week for a new episode. Or visit our archives to listen to and download previous shows.